What's going on, everybody, and welcome into another edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you in the evening hours of Saturday, September 17th, 2022. And tonight we're breaking down not only one, but two Cardinals wins as the doubleheader against the Cincinnati Reds. Well, it couldn't have gone better, at least from a box score standpoint. Now, if you were hoping to see some history from Albert Pujols today, I understand there may be a little disappointment associated with that as Albert did not notch a home run in game one when he got the start against Mike Miner. We'll walk you through what his afternoon was like. And then he sat the bench for the night game, did get a pinch hit opportunity, but struck out in that one in a game that featured very little offense on either side. But nevertheless, the Cardinals were able to come away with game one thanks to some others' contributions. And the Cardinals did get a home run from an age 40-something position player in game one on Saturday, but it wasn't Albert. It was Yadier Molina. He hits a bomb, and that contributes to a 5-1 to win in the afternoon game. And then in the nightcap, a game that would have been over in two hours, 29 minutes through nine innings had anybody scored, but it was 0-0 at that point and ends up needing 11 innings, but the Cardinals find a way in the bottom of the 11th With Paul Goldschmidt, he swung the bat, and I guess he gets the RBI, which was nice for him because to that point in the game, he was 0 for 4 with four strikeouts in the nightcap. But really, it was Andrew Kisner that made that play happen. So excited to gush a little bit about Andrew Kisner, and we'll play some audio from him after game two. The play that he made to run pretty far inside the baseline, inside the base path, after he establishes his own base path. We'll talk about the rule a little bit, and... Uh, really funny if you were watching the Cardinals broadcast to so just watch and listen as Danny Mack and Brad Thompson sort of reacted to that moment as the Cardinals had won the game. David Bell of Cincinnati was out there arguing the situation. It's not a reviewable play, evidently, and we'll talk about at least my impression of, of what went down. But boy, it felt like in the moment for sure that the Cardinals had gotten away with one. I'll give you my impression of that. I know there was some chatter on social media, different folks chiming in with their interpretations of of what that rule call should have been and what it was. So we'll talk about that a little bit with regard to the night game. And we'll also dial it back to what happened earlier this afternoon in a game started by Dakota Hudson. That was the best start of his major league career. Like that would be my submission for you as he goes eight innings, gives up just one run. It was unearned. Although up in the press box, we had a conversation about the fact that if you're the pitcher that makes the throwing error that leads to the run, should that not be considered an earned run because you're the you're the only reason it was unearned? So we might have a laugh about that. But all in all, really good stuff from Dakota Hudson. We'll talk about how from a shaky beginning this afternoon, he ended up really settling in and turning a game that after one inning, again, this is probably stuff people don't care about, but after the first inning, it was a 27-minute inning, which would have meant a four-hour and three-minute pace for a nine-inning game, something in that neighborhood. And the game ended up going like two hours, 42 minutes or something pretty well quick relative to where it started. So we'll talk about how that went down and give you the skinny on Albert's day, as we said, and uh, anything else that necessarily comes to mind. We will play some Dakota Hudson audio, by the way, because between games, a little bit inside baseball on how that works is doubleheaders. We don't get inside the clubhouse to talk with the players, but they bring the manager out. Ollie talks to everybody and the Cardinals are usually gracious enough to give us a player or two, the starting pitcher in this case, Dakota Hudson, came out and for about five minutes 
talked with the media in the interview room, and this was about as affable and in as good of a mood as I've seen Dakota Hudson in in some time. So really happy for him to have the kind of start that he had. And then we'll have a little bit of fun with audio as well, uh, listening to some of the things he had to say after that first game. So so a lot to get to on tonight's episode of B-Shape Daily. Appreciate you guys for being with me. Real quick, before we dive into the content of the show, would like to ask or remind you to subscribe to B-Shape Daily on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcast, make sure you are subscribed. I do keep asking, hey, if you haven't left a podcast review, if you're an Apple Podcast subscriber and you haven't left a review, I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to the other guy. You probably hear me talking and you think, oh, no, he doesn't mean me. No, I mean you because I will know if you do it. And I'll be like, hey, thank you for adding that review on Apple Podcasts. So click the five-star review. Let's get those rolling through and the numbers up. Should only take you a couple of seconds. And Patreon.com slash bshafer12. That's the way to support the podcast. And if you're getting into sports gambling topics for football season, that's something that I'll be working on adding over there as well. On the B-Shape Daily feed, you will see, uh, for now anyway, at least one, maybe sometimes two episodes of the podcast that are football-related. They won't be baseball. They won't be Cardinals episodes. But just read the label on the episode title, and you'll be able to figure out whether it's for you or it's maybe not for you uh, based on that. Uh, down the road, I would like to put some of the more non-baseball stuff, the, the football betting, that kind of stuff on Patreon a little bit more frequently. But for now, I don't have enough patrons to where I feel like that's fair. So I'm going to continue to give everything for free for the most part. Um, but at some point down the road in terms of a, a monetization strategy and uh, making this worth my while, I, I should probably move some stuff behind a paywall eventually. But hey, for right now, we're just having fun doing it, and I'm trying to build this brand up and appreciate you guys for being in on the ground floor. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, if you have any questions, by the way, about Patreon and how that works, shoot me a direct message on Twitter. That might be something that for some people, they're like, hey, I'd like to support you, but I don't know what the hell that is. And I just had uh, my buddy Luke reach out this afternoon, and I kind of gave him the skinny on what that looks like. So if you have any questions and, and would like to know more, I would love to let you know how that how that goes. So at bshafer12 on Twitter, hit me up for a direct message and let's have a conversation. Appreciate you guys, as always, for being here. Let's start with game one, the afternoon game against the Cincinnati Reds on Saturday. This was the one where everybody was hoping and praying that maybe Albert Pujols would do something special. Mike Miner, left-handed pitcher for the Reds, was on the mound. It seemed like a juicy matchup for Albert. And credit to Ollie Marmel, the Cardinals manager, for putting Albert Pujols in the number two spot in the lineup for that day game. I thought that was so cool. And it's something that I've mentioned before on the show. Like, if you get into a point where this division is locked up, and I guess technically that's not the case at this point in time, the Brewers right now are whipping up on the Yankees. They've won two in a row this weekend against New York. The Cardinals, fortunately, though, just got the doubleheader sweep. So in a two-game span or a two-day span for Milwaukee where they have beaten the New York Yankees twice, the Cardinals have actually gained half a game on Milwaukee, going from, I guess, seven and a half to eight games ahead. Because even though neither side has lost a game, the Cardinals have played three to the Brewers two since the beginning of Friday. So Cardinals back to eight games up on Milwaukee. And even though the Brewers are really not helping out the Cardinals right now with the way that they're playing because they started to play some pretty good baseball, the Cardinals are finding a way to whittle down that magic number. It's now down to nine. So keep your eye on that. It's getting closer. It's get, it's just monumentally difficult right now. The way the calendar sets up for the Brewers to catch St. Louis 
with this eight-game lead, and it's actually just seven in the loss column, but the Brewers have to win nine to catch up to the Cardinals based on uh, the differential in, in the number of games played. The Brewers have played two fewer games, but they physically have to go win those games, those extra additional games, in order to keep pace with the Cardinals. So they're nine back in the win column, seven in the loss column. It's looking pretty bleak if you're a Milwaukee fan. But, hey, there is that whole wild card deal that you can try and uh, cling your hopes to. And as of right now, it's looking like the Brewers are the team on the outside looking in relative to the Phillies and the Padres. But what I was going to get to when I begin this diatribe, which I always tend to go off kilter, off track, I was talking about the notion of if the division gets out of reach officially, if I'm Molly Marmel, I'm batting Albert Pujols in the lineup. First of all, he's in there every day. And second of all, he's probably up there near the leadoff spot because you want to get him as many at-bats as possible just from a number standpoint to try and get him to 700. Well, today, Ollie Marmel put Albert Pujols in the number two spot in the lineup, which I thought was wonderful. Get a little bit of uh, Paul Goldschmidt protection as though Albert needs it. The way that he's been hitting it, it doesn't matter where you put him in the lineup. He's going to produce is the way it seems to go. But, of course, this afternoon... Albert gets in that two spot, and so he's getting those early opportunities twice in a row. Mike Miner walks Albert Pujols. The first time, he got him 0-2, and Albert battled all the way back to go 3-2 and then to draw the walk. And the second time, by the time it was 2-0, already the boos were raining down at Bush Stadium. So Cardinals fans weren't happy because they came to see Albert lift the bat off his shoulder and swing it, try and hit one deep. Obviously, that did not end up happening in the first game. Uh, nor did it in the second game when he didn't get the start. But Albert goes 0 for 3 in that first game, reaches base with the two walks, as I mentioned. Wasn't meant to be. Hey, listen, I've still maintained Sunday would be the day that he gets to 700, so I guess that just means it's going to have to be a two-home run game on Sunday afternoon for Albert Pujols at Bush Stadium. Albert Pujols' bobblehead day, I'm sure he's going to be in the lineup given that. I don't really know how else you'd want to draw it up. I think it's going to have to happen uh, on Sunday. Obviously, that would be a monumental feat, but we'll see if he's able to pull it off. But back to the game one of Saturday's doubleheader. 5-1, to one, the Cardinals get the win. They score runs in the second inning, plating a couple there against Mike Miner. Who, I mean, he was elevating the pitch count. Mike Miner was not very effective, was not efficient by any means, and the Cardinals were able to certainly take advantage of that. And that began back in the second inning. Tommy Edmond drove in the first run of the game and then... Miner actually walked Paul Goldschmidt in walking in a run with that one. The bases were loaded, 3-1 count to Goldie, and he walks to score the second Cardinals run. And then BFD, Brandon Donovan, comes up with an RBI hit in the third inning. And then it was the Yadier Molina home run, a two-run shot, his fifth of the season, number 176 in the career of Yadier Molina. So he's got a little bit of ways to go to get to 700, but I'm not counting him out just yet. Sure, he may have... 524 more to go, but there's nothing that says he can't play for the next 40 years and and catch Albert. For as much as we've talked about Yachty being the Iron Man, I think it is pretty clear, all jokes aside, that he's he's worn down a little bit. But September Yachty is in full effect, and I think there's a pretty good chance that turns into October Yachty. If there's one guy who I could say, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him turn back the clock to find a way to make good on being a productive player when it counts in October, it's Yadier Molina. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see that take place. And uh, obviously this afternoon he was able to contribute in that way. Who else contributed? It was Dakota Hudson's day. Started off in this game looking like it was going to be the same old Dakota Hudson. 
in those early innings, didn't find the efficiency in terms of just like the optics and the way a baseball game feels. Sometimes that's where Dakota Hudson is the worst defender, where it's like, yeah, his numbers aren't even that bad today, but it just feels like it was a complete slog to get there. And it it's just not really enjoyable at times. Wasn't really his fault entirely in the first inning. Nolan Arenado actually made an error in that first inning that allowed the first base runner for the Reds to reach in the game. And that's rather uncharacteristic. He's made a few of those recently, but again, he'll make a play like last night, which is just one of the best plays I've ever seen. I maintain that last night on B-Shape Daily. Scroll back if you missed it. It was a fun episode to talk about everything going on from Friday night, including the Ryan Helsley immaculate inning. But the play that Arnado made yesterday was fantastic. Scroll to Saturday afternoon, not as good of a play. Obviously ends up with the error, although he did make a pretty nice smooth throw later in the game. It's going to happen. He's going to make those errors, not the end of the world. But I do want to mention, keep in mind, when we talk about game two and the play that Andrew Kisner made as a base runner, it kind of got brought up a little bit, and Kisner referenced the play that he and Arnado connected on from Friday in order to sort of highlight the difference between the two plays maybe what to do and what not to do. And Kisner ended up on the right side of it two days in a row. So that's pretty cool. But the error in the first by Arnado ultimately does not come back to haunt the Cardinals in that inning. It just caused a little bit more traffic on the base paths for Dakota Hudson to have to deal with. He ultimately gives up just the one hit in that inning and then is able to get Aristides Aquino to strike out to end the threat in the first. Then the Cardinals half of the first lasted a little bit of time. They weren't able to get a run across. And so nothing had happened But 27 minutes had left the clock on this earth, and the Cardinals and Reds had only gotten through one inning. So it was like, oh, boy, here we go again. That just feels like the pace of game of a a Dakota Hudson start. But got to give him credit for the way that he really settled things in. Ends up going, as I mentioned, eight innings. That is a career high in Major League Baseball for Hudson. He's never done that. He's never completed eight innings in a game in the big leagues before. Seven and two-thirds was his previous best in that regard. And so today, a new career high for him. And he just got more efficient, it seemed like, as it went along. He had a couple different innings where he threw eight, nine pitches somewhere in that range and got through seven where he was at around 90 pitches. And I thought, yeah, I think in a situation like this, doubleheader, something to prove. I think they're going to send him back out there with that four-run lead. And they did. He ended up getting through the eighth inning scoreless, 102 pitches on the day for Dakota Hudson to get through those eight innings. And pretty remarkably for him, relative to where he's been at times, 71 strikes. So very good strike percentage. I guess that's hovering right around 69, uh, which is certainly nice. And uh, credit to Dakota Hudson. Like, he had to go to the minor leagues. He got sent down after being pretty much a staple in the organization, in the rotation for the last couple few years. Obviously had the Tommy John surgery, and so that's a factor maybe in a season that really hasn't been his best because this is really his first full season back from that. Yes, he had the advantage of being able to come back a little bit at the end of last year to get his feet wet to where maybe you hoped, okay, there wouldn't be that entire ramp-up season where we can make excuses about his production and, and talk about it in terms of like, well, he's still coming off of an injury. We had hoped that that wouldn't be the case, but maybe realistically it's not entirely fair to pin down Dakota Hudson for a rough season Uh, given that, yeah, he's working his way back in his first full season after Tommy John's surgery. I don't know that the outing that he had on Saturday is going to do anything to change the Cardinals' future plans about Dakota Hudson. Um, I do hope he gets some more opportunities the rest of the way, though, just because 
if you look at Michaelis and you look at Wainwright and, and even Montgomery recently with a tough outing, there have been some starts where it's like, yeah, these guys could maybe use some extra rest. If you give them an extra day here and there, I don't think it can hurt heading into the playoffs. And again, you're up eight games. There's no reason for concern uh, with regard to making the playoffs and winning the Central Division. I think it's a pipe dream maybe a little bit to catch the NL East just because you're going to have to catch the Mets and the Braves. The Braves continue to win. They beat the Phillies on Saturday. So, yeah, you're going to do your best and put your best foot forward to be able to, to chase down those teams. But at the same time, I think it would make maybe sense. I'm not saying go to a six-man rotation, but you could sort of modify things a little bit to allow your guys to get extra rest. And if that means more Dakota Hudson, I'd be kind of okay with it just because I think in terms of the playoff rotation, there are still questions, especially with the way Jack Flaherty has been pitching, just not very effective. And you kind of wonder, okay, it's all hands on deck. We we, we want to have an open audition to see what kind of innings we're going to get from the guys that, we, that we've got right now. I think that's got to be the mindset for the Cardinals. Not saying Dakota's going to be one of your top five, but you never know. You might have injuries. You might have things happen. And it would be good to have Hudson still be sharp and still be able to jump in if he's needed. And he was a guy today that I, I really feel like the way he pitched, first of all, and then just the attitude that he had about things in the aftermath, Maybe he's a guy that deserves another shot to kind of see what it looks like. Again, I don't think you're going to give him anything, but you can't argue with eight basically shutout innings. Again, the only reason that it wasn't a, a complete shutout inning is, or a complete shutout game for Dakota Hudson is missed that one final inning, and he made a, a throwing error, which he acknowledged after the game that, yeah, those are the two things that I would have changed. But it was interesting to see Dakota Hudson and get a chance to talk to him. So I'm going to play some audio from Hudson talking about th this clip first that you'll hear. It'll be begin with a question from Katie Wu about the notion of how he handled his demotion and sort of what what that journey has been like for him to then get a chance to come back as the 29th man today for the doubleheader. So, like, it's very possible he gets sent back to Memphis on Sunday. Not sure what the roster moves, the machinations could look like for that. Obviously, if he gets sent down, they could bring him back up at some point in time uh, before the end of the season. And since he just threw eight innings, he can't pitch the next couple of days anyway. So I imagine that will be the roster move that happens on Sunday. But uh, it was sort of a full circle moment, I think, for Dakota Hudson on Saturday to get the opportunity and then to do really well with it. So here's Katie asking him about sort of that journey uh, and Dakota getting a chance to describe sort of what that's been like for him over the past few weeks. Just that it's obviously never easy to accept an option, but always complimented you very nicely about the way that you handled it and how you went immediately to work. Do you feel like it benefited you to take yourself out of a little bit higher pressure environment and focus on the things that made you you and led to your success today? Yeah, I mean, there's really, I mean, if you don't take yourself back and, and think about what you've been doing and where you're going, you're never going to come back. So, I mean, the adjustments and then what you're doing, I just, you know, I, that's where I had to go. I had to go and kind of kind of have that mental talk with myself and then say, hey, is this what we're going to do? Or how do we do, how do I get personally to my best? So I just, you know, had some little self-talk and then got back to it. That conversation you're saying you had with yourself, did that happen on the way there? Yeah. I mean, the four-hour drive to Memphis is a, is a perfect time for it. So, <laughs> I mean... Yeah, that was a there was a little bit of, of that. So turn the radio down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had talked with my wife. She's always super supportive with everything I do. So um, you know, just going back to a lot of things. Do you, do you along the way there, or maybe now that you're here, benefit? I mean, do you allow yourself to okay, this this could be a good thing. This could be yeah. A step back to go 
Yeah, I mean, if if it helps me refocus and make more pitches, it's it will be a good thing. So, I mean, as much as I hated it, as much as it did make me angry, um, maybe it's something that can help me turn the page. Do you drive slower to Memphis than you drive back to Memphis? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd say my foot was on the gas a little bit more coming back. <laughs> So there was Cardinals starter Dakota Hudson after Saturday's game one of the doubleheader. He gets the win in that one going a career high eight innings. Just the one run allowed. It was unearned. Kind of fun there with Hudson. But you might see what I what I mean, sort of what I was getting at with regard to just his demeanor. And it seems like he's at peace with the way things have gone and just kind of candid about recognizing that, yeah, I mean, I had some things to work on. He also talked about the the pitch clock in the minor leagues. He was obviously asked about that because pacing has been a big part of the issues that he's had at the major league level. And so he was asked about, like, did the pitch clock, you know, what was that like to, to have to deal with that? And he said there's things about it that he liked that he didn't like. But he admitted that it sort of did dial him into a little bit more of a rhythm. And that's something the Cardinals had been trying to get him to do throughout this entire season at the major league level. And so... If it's something that happened to benefit him at the minor league level and he can maintain that even without the pitch clock for the remainder of this season and obviously next year in Major League Baseball, there will be a pitch clock, so he'll be a little bit accustomed already to what that looks like. I I don't think that could be a negative, and that's why I'm saying like I was a really big Dakota Hudson fan coming into the year, and so even though I had reached a point with his game in recent months and and certainly in recent weeks where I I said, all right, we've probably seen enough, need to make a change, like I – Definitely believe that second chances should be a part of the way the Cardinals operate as an organization. And if you offer that chance and then it doesn't pan out, like we're kind of seeing right now with Paul DeYoung, who's going with or going through rather sort of that Brandon Moss September of 2016, I think it was, when Brandon Moss was just, I mean, nicest guy in the world. Couldn't do a darn thing in September of that year for the Cardinals. That's kind of where Paul DeYoung is right now. He had his really bad struggles to begin the season. And then the Cardinals sent him down. They brought him back. He looked like a rejuvenated player and then has fallen back off the pace to where now, uh, you know, for better or worse, and and I do believe it is for worse because I really appreciate Paul DeYoung. It's just kind of one of those things that it is what it is. At a certain point, it can't be denied what the results are, but I appreciated that the Cardinals gave DeYoung that second chance and, and that opportunity to sort of remake himself and see what he could do with it. It didn't stick. In Hudson's case, whether it sticks or not, we don't really know yet, but I I do think that there's merit to, all right, you came back, you worked on some things while you were away, and it looks different. It looks good. Can you sustain that? I would like to see Hudson get that opportunity, though it could be hard to project where that comes from, considering you had Steven Matz come back from the injured list. He's back with the team now and pitched, actually, in Game 2 on Saturday. We'll make reference to what that looked like for him out of the bullpen uh, when we get to talking about game two, but just an interesting sort of perspective on, on where things are with Dakota Hudson, but also like the, the joking demeanor that he had as well about, yeah, the the foot was on the gas a little bit more coming back from Memphis than maybe on the way down there, but that had to be a humbling experience for Hudson. And I think he seemed to have come out on the other side of it for the better. Although we can't necessarily say he's on the other side of it because again, Sunday he's probably sent back out barring something uh, unforeseen, but I think he'll be back soon and potentially in time to make a another either start or pitch out of the the relief core uh, when he's rested a, a couple of days from now and, and able to do so following the start that he made on Saturday. And before we dive into the conversation on Game 2, which we will get to here in just a moment, 
I want to play just one more audio clip from Dakota Hudson, and it's a little bit elongated. Like I said, there was about five minutes and 30 seconds of Hudson in total from this afternoon, and he was about as affable as I can recall and really gave some good candid answers and then had a little bit of fun toward the end uh, with guys like Ray Hummel sort of chiming in and uh, giving him a little bit of grief. And so Hudson was in rare form, and so I'm just going to let this ride. It's a couple minutes of audio that uh, you guys can enjoy, and then we'll then we'll dive into wrapping up and talking about game two. But the clip that you're about to hear starts with uh, a question that was asked of Hudson just about admiring and, and being involved in an environment where so much history is going on with guys like Yachty and guys like Albert Pujols. So here was Dakota Hudson's answer to that and then uh, the hilarity that sort of ensued beyond that. I mean, us as baseball players, I feel like a lot of us are fans of the game. So uh, we come into this, and like I remember pretending to be Yachty, and then you know I could never, I could never play as well as either of those guys, and I ended up pitching for a reason. Um, but these guys have have influenced the game in ways that you know have brought the future of the game to where it is. So it's a lot, it's a lot of fun being in the same locker room. Yeah, yeah. I, I did. I have always thought, though, and, and when I was in that moment, I was like, "Okay, well, if I get him 0 for 4, I'm taking that and telling everyone about it." So, <laughs> whenever he hit the homer, I, I mean, I had to replay. I see all the replays a lot, but thank goodness we signed him so that uh, they can have a little bit of those in between me and everyone else he's hit them off of. He was one of the 453. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not a bad book to be in, though, with such a prolific hitter. I have no clue. I was hope I was hoping today, um, you know, if I get that nine innings to Yachty, that's where I'm, you know, that's that would be something cool. I could kind of like open that door, but and you know, right now I'm just trying to pick his brain and learn from him as much as I can. Is it surreal that you're the crowd boo? Yeah, I mean they better boom. I got booed. They bet they better boo the. I got booed as a as a home player. They better boo everyone else. I mean, but yeah. Just some good stuff, a good sense of humor by Dakota Hudson, because, of course, that's a reference to 2019, right, when the Angels came to St. Louis and Dakota Hudson gave up the emotional home run to Albert Pujols that he got a standing ovation for. Like, an away player hit a home run, and Dakota Hudson got cheers that he heard because he gave up a home run. Cheers for Albert Pujols, and he's... A pitcher and has his home fans doing that. That had to be like a complete mind bleep for Dakota Hudson to have that go down. And then he jokes at the end and they're talking about like Albert Pujols ends up walking. Base load. He got Paul Goldschmidt coming up a huge spot in the game to potentially do some damage, take a lead. And there's booze going on as Goldie comes to bat with the base loaded. And Dakota's like, listen, I've been booed by Cardinals fans at Bush Stadium before, so they need to be booing everybody. I don't even care what it is. Boo the umpires, boo the other team, doesn't matter. Boo them because, I, you know, they booed me, so hell. And he was saying that in jest, obviously, you know, in the moment where there have been times where Cardinals fans have booed Dakota Hudson. Like, it's not hard to imagine that given uh, the efficiency issues he's had and there's been some rough starts from time to time. And so, yeah, he's he's experienced that and is aware of it. But at the same time, I think he's got a good sense of humor about it. And so it was kind of good to see that come out. And he he said, it's all fun. And he's having a good time for sure. Being able to help the Cardinals out on Saturday, get that 5-1 to one win in game one. Let's rush forward to game two. Not a whole lot to talk about from an offensive perspective. We're going to really hone in on two aspects of the night game, which was one, Jose Quintana. Talk about 
looking for that competition for a playoff rotation. Maybe Jose Quintana has taken a step forward and uh, up a couple rungs on the ladder, so to speak, in terms of where he falls in because he was fantastic as well in game two on Saturday. Eight innings, just like Dakota Hudson, just two hits allowed and no walks, no runs to go with six strikeouts. His best start as a Cardinal, Jose Quintana. How about that? Much more than a quality start in this game. And I think that has to give him some consideration. Like Jordan Montgomery's last start was rough. I think his upside is higher than what you get from Quintana. But Quintana's done one thing that the other guys have not. And his 10 starts, I believe, with the Cardinals that it's been so far, I think that's the number. He has not given up more than two earned runs in any of his starts with the Cardinals, which is pretty remarkable. Now, where that gets a little bit skewed is the fact that one of those starts, he only went like three innings or three and two-thirds innings, didn't get very deep into the game. But that being said, he didn't give up a whole bunch of runs, didn't get shelled. So that's good. And I can at least check this out here. Nine starts, it looks like. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine starts. Since joining the Cardinals, he had the one that was two and two-thirds, so he didn't even get through three innings in that one. And then he had a start a couple weeks ago that was four and two-thirds. Everything else has been at least five innings, and each of them have been two or fewer earned runs. There was a couple games where he gave up four runs in total, but only two of them were earned. So he's been pretty consistent. He's given the Cardinals a chance to win each and every time he goes out there. But today, I mean, outings like today, when you pitch in a dominant fashion the way that he did, that's got to merit some consideration. And I think when you get into a playoff rotation conversation, you look at the notion of, okay, is this guy going to actively harm my chances to win a game if he has an off day? I think even at his worst from what we've seen of Jose Quintana, he doesn't actively harm the team. So that may be something to give consideration to. thought it was interesting. read an article from Ben Fredrickson uh, from over the weekend where he wrote about the fact that Ollie Marmel and the Cardinals, they're not necessarily giving you the playoff rotation blueprint that you expect or that I expect or that we expect. Like, it's not automatically going to be Adam Wainwright, Miles Michaelis for those first two games, even though I think it's going to end up that way. There is some consideration to, look, I mean, they've got to go with the hot hand and go with the guys that are going to give them the best chance in that moment. I do think, though, if you're planning long-term for what a playoff rotation and a long stay in the playoffs looks like, you have to think about, okay, who are the guys that are going to be pitching at their best at home? It's it's Wainwright and Michaelis. And then you might have some other guys that you can get more out of on the road. But, I mean, it's possible that they go a different direction. If Montgomery finishes really strong, he's been great since the Cardinals traded for him outside of that last outing. Uh, Quintana is really coming on strong right now and seems to have the mentality, the, uh, the ice water in his veins to not let something rattle him. Uh, Jack Flaherty doesn't seem to have that right now. Like, God love Jack Flaherty. I'm not describing Jack Flaherty as the guy that doesn't get rattled by things emotionally. You know, he got upset after his start and, uh, you know, was upset in the dugout after Friday's game. Those are things that you've got to take account of and recognize that, like, all right, emotionally, is he going to be ready for the playoff situation? Is that Mamba mentality actually going to going to stick for Jack Flaherty or is he going to crumple under it? Right now, I think it's a battle between the, the, the physical and the mental a little bit for Flaherty. He's got it within him. But if he's not doing it right now, then there's not really a whole lot else to talk about because the Cardinals need the guy that's going to do it right now because now is all you got. You don't get a second chance at this when you get into October. You've got to make sure you're making the right decisions. So I'm looking right now, and I would say that you've got both Montgomery and Quintana ahead of Flaherty in the pecking order for me at this point. You know, Hudson's not Hudson and Flaherty are in a similar category for me. Like, I'd like to see more from both of them. I'm willing to reconsider my stance on both of them. 
But for right now, I haven't seen enough to say I would plug that guy right into a rotation in the playoffs or or give him meaningful opportunities, whether that's in a relief role or otherwise. Like, I think both those guys are competing, not necessarily for the playoff rotation, but just to get on the playoff roster and say, I can give this team innings and they can trust me to do the job. I think a big step forward today by Dakota Hudson from completely irrelevant and not considered at all to, hey, he looked pretty good. Maybe we should give him a chance at some point later in September, see what that looks like again, and maybe he can work his way back into consideration. Flaherty, the complete opposite with what he did on Friday. Uh, I think he lost a lot of ground in terms of where he was at. Now, he may have the advantage of being the incumbent sort of in the rotation. If they give him another start and he looks good in it, then suddenly he's able to, to kind of claw his way back into much more firm consideration. But we'll have to wait and see what that looks like. But very good stuff from Hudson, as we mentioned. Uh, even better stuff from Jose Quintana, who really looks rock solid and sharp right now. Cardinals couldn't get any runs, though, and so you get into all the way to the 11th inning after a scoreless ninth inning by Ryan Helsley. Good on him to pitch on consecutive days. Of course, he had the immaculate inning last night when he only throw nine pitches. I guess you'd tell the manager, yep, I've got an inning in me if you need me tonight. And so credit to, as well, the Cardinals being able to come up with that first game without needing the Helsleys and the Gallegos. As you had Andre Pallante come in and throw the final inning, not a save situation because it was a 5-1 to one lead. But you get eight from Hudson, one from Pallante in the day game. Suddenly your bullpen has a chance to really be utilized in the night game because of that superlative effort by what Hudson was able to give you. And then the night game, you really don't need a whole lot from your bullpen either, except for the fact that it goes into extra innings. Like if the offense had scored, you'd be talking about Quintana Helsley off the sheet. It's done. But they end up going to Gallegos in the 10th. That's a big inning for Gallegos, by the way. Because Ali Marmol has talked a lot about needing guys in those Manford Man situations in the 10th inning, 11th inning, when you've got the automatic runner on second, that you've got to be able to get strikeouts to get out of those situations. So they like high strikeout guys to pitch in those innings when they can. And Gallegos hasn't always been a high strikeout. He's moderate strikeout. But today, two strikeouts in that 10th inning, that's exactly the blueprint because you don't want to be putting things up to fate by, yeah, it's going to be a fly ball, and we hope that we can get out of it thereafter. That's what Steven Matz did to start the 11th inning, but he was able to find a way out of it as well. A scoreless 11th inning for Steven Matz to lock down this game, essentially, or to set up the bottom of the 11th where the Cardinals were able to come through. It's the fifth win of the season for Matz because he does get the win after pitching the scoreless 11th inning. There's that fly ball to left field to begin. Corey Dickerson, I swear to you, I didn't know if he was going to catch it. Earlier in the game, Dickerson had, in that first extra inning situation, the Cardinals had a chance to win the game, and it was a pop fly into shallow left field. Uh, Andrew Kisner hit the ball. I was thinking, oh, boy, how do you put yourself into that spot? I don't know if Pop Warner sent him. I don't know if it was just he thought he could beat it out. My thinking is this, the and I, it was maybe the shortstop. I don't really know what the, the fielder was because the Reds had gone to a five infielder alignment with only then two outfielders, which is something that, by the way, will be illegal next year. You won't even be able to do that in late inning situations, which I think is a mistake. It doesn't seem doesn't seem to me that that, that would be the way that that should be used. Um, but nevertheless, that's banning the shift and, and going to ban that sort of strategy in, in extra inning situations. Uh, unless they, they make some sort of alteration to the rule. But what happened was the infielder and the outfielder were converging toward the ball, and it was very shallow, the pop-up by Kisner, but because the infielder was going back and ranging out toward it, I think Pop Warner or whoever was deciding over there, or Dickerson, whatever, thought maybe there's a beat on it. If that infielder makes the catch going out toward left field, 
it doesn't really matter how how deep it is. It would have been easy to score that run, I think, for Dickerson because the momentum of the fielder would have taken him so far the wrong direction. He would have had to completely stop, reverse fields, and then get something behind the throw. There just would not have been time to do that. But the outfielder is the guy who caught the ball and was able to make that that throw home and get Corey Dickerson, who in my estimation, if you make that decision to go and, and tag up and try to be aggressive and win the game there, which I don't have the most ginormous problem with. It would have been two outs and an opportunity then for the leadoff batter, Brendan Donovan, to maybe do something rather than, you know, say it's going to be do or die right in this spot. And if we don't get it, we're just going to have to go to the next inning. Like you could have given uh, Donovan an opportunity, put the bat in his hands and see if he can get something done there. But instead they say, we're going to either win the game here or we're running ourselves out of an inning. What I think has to be done there though, when TJ Friedel catches the ball and you're Dickerson, you've got to know I'm sliding to the inside of the base. I got to be sliding to the first base side of home plate. And for me, you're not even sliding. You need to be head first diving, especially if you see where that ball comes in. Throw was up the line toward the third base side. The catcher's body positioning dictated that. you got to be paying attention to that if you're Dickerson. And you can't just give me this flimsy-ass slide with your feet first right over the heart of the plate, giving the catcher every opportunity to, to tag you out. Like, I have all the confidence in the world that if it was Brendan Donovan or Edmund, let alone the speed aspect of it, but... Paul Goldsmith, like think of a guy in terms of base running who just has to know I have to dive. I have to launch myself head first, contort the body a little bit, and then Mundo Sosa slide, but not even. Like I think if he makes that head first slide and just clips the very left side of the plate toward the, and has his entire body way over to the first base side, I don't think the catcher can get to him. But Dickerson, he seems to do one thing really well, which is put the ball in play and get base hit singles. You know, He's going to have a 290 average or whatever it's going to end up being for the end of the season, despite the fact that he was hitting like 100 for the beginning of the year. But Dickerson, aside from just getting base hits and having that 289 average that he's at right now, everything else about his game lately has just been like, man, what is he? I don't really understand it sometimes. Fielding in left field can be an adventure. Like the play that happened in the 11th inning with Steven Matz on the mound. It's like he was under it, but then he had to jump and reach up for the ball, and it put him in such a bad position that the runner was able to tag on a fly ball to left field. Like, granted, it was deep to left field, but not deep enough that if, I mean, if you get behind the ball and then you charge it and make your throw to third, that that does not happen that the runner advances from second to third. So the defense, I, I don't really know how he won a gold glove in his pass. It just looks very clunky at times for Dickerson in the outfield. And the base running was an example there where I think, okay, I don't have a huge problem with you going for it, but if you do, you can't feet first slide right down the damn middle of the plate. Like, that was a weird one for me. So that ran the Cardinals out of the 10th inning. We mentioned the 11th that Matts was able to overcome, getting that base runner from second to third. The Manford man advances on the fly ball to Dickerson. Uh, Matts comes up with those next two outs and puts the Cardinals in a great spot to be able to to send the home, the fans home happy in the bottom of the 11th. And once it was bases loaded, nobody out for Paul Goldschmidt, I'm like, all right, there's absolutely no way they're they're not winning this game. It was a walk to Donovan, a base hit for Tommy Edmond, and it's Goldie coming up to the bat. It's like there's literally no chance the Cardinals lose this game here. It's just a question of how they're going to win it. Ground ball the third, Andrew Kisner running down the line, and boy, was that brilliant. Andrew Kisner ends up being the hero of the game with his base running. There's a lot of consternation, a lot of conversation about what actually happened on this play. He starts out 
in foul territory, taking the lead, taking the secondary lead. And then as he's running, sort of drifts toward the inside part of the base path, which people say, well, that's legal. You can do that. That's legal. You can. The rule is the runner establishes the path. You know, he establishes his own base path. From there, you can't knowingly and intentionally interfere with the throw home. Like, you can't throw your arm up. You can't stick your elbow out intentionally, right? But it's a situation where it's a throw from the third baseman to the the catcher, and the runner is heading toward the catcher. So it's happening behind him. The play is developing behind him. He does not know where that ball is going to be. So he can't intentionally really do a whole lot without kind of turning and looking. However, as a good base runner, and it's something the Cardinals practice, and we'll, we'll hear some audio from Andrew Kisner from after the game talking about the fact that they practice this, what you can do is know where the throw is likely to go. Be on the inside so that the catcher has got to either adjust, move to the outside, which is exactly what Andrew Kisner did the night before on the Arenado play because Arenado actually threw it to the outside of the base runner, the third base side, and Kisner was able to make the catch and, and apply the tag at home plate. This would have just been a force out, so it's even a little bit easier for Reds catcher Austin Romine. Look at that. Former Cardinal. But he's on the Reds now, and I don't think he handled this situation very well. Didn't lead his third baseman into a spot where he could figure out where he needed to go. Like, if Romine wants to play the outside lane, I think that's an obvious throw that could be made. But credit to Kisner. Starts outside, so the third baseman thinks, I have to throw it toward the inside. But then Kisner, he's not like darting and zigging and zagging. He's just drifting toward the inside, but he's establishing that base path for himself. And so it's not a three-foot rule within the baseline. There was That's only evidently when a tag play is involved. And there was no tag play here. It was going to be a force at home. So the three-foot rule really doesn't apply. If you want to play the number of feet, the elbow, the left elbow of Andrew Kisner was probably a good five, five and a half feet from the chalk, like inside, because his feet were a, a good two and a half to three feet to the left of the chalk line. And obviously they started out toward the outside, but it's legal. He's just drifting. He's not, he's not intentionally impeding. He's just going where the throw is probably going to be, knowing as a catcher what these plays often look like. And so he does everything perfectly. He's running, so his elbows are out a little bit. It's not like he he chicken wings his elbow in order to catch the ball because, again, he can't exactly see where it's developing, so he's not intentionally impeding anything. Like he is, he wants to impede the throw. That's his goal, and he admitted it after the game. But he's not making any action in the moment that's going to get it called by the umpire, and that's the bottom line. People argue it on Twitter. It's legal. It's legal. He can do that. It's legal. Really, I don't like that terminology. It's not legal or illegal. It's just a matter of, is the umpire going to make a judgment call that you interfered and did so intentionally. That's the bottom line. Like we can, we know what the merits for that would be, but what's so interesting about it is it doesn't matter functionally whether the action Kisner commits is legal or illegal. According to the rule book, all that matters is what the umpire decides on it because it's not a reviewable play. They're not going to be able to review it after the fact. So you just in that moment have to do what you can do to a impede the throw, but not make it look like you're impeding the throw. Because if they don't call it, that's it. That's the end of the game. David Bell can come out and argue all he wants, and he did. But there was nothing that was going to happen thereafter because the the judgment call or the lack of a call in that moment was made. It was already done. And they determined that Andrew Kisner didn't do anything outside the bounds. And so with that judgment call, the Cardinals win the baseball game. Just a very good play. Check out my Twitter account, at for 12 I, I 
screenshotted a still image of the very most perfect, I thought, angle of when the ball just connects to his elbow. And you can see it's a good five, five and a half feet inside the baseline. But listen, all you got to do is sell it. It's it's legal till it isn't, right? And so if they don't call it, you get away with it. And whether it was technically legal, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm not even going to spend any time responding to those arguments because it doesn't actually matter. All it matters is, did the umpire call it? If he didn't, then you're right. It's legal. But the exact same play could have happened, and the umpire would have said, hey, you're out of the baseline, or not really out of the baseline. He would say, you impeded intentionally this throw, and so you're out. And the umpire would have been right, because that's the call. There is no debating it. So that's what's so amazing about the play. I love that he pushed the envelope the way that he did, because you're putting the onus on the umpire to make a call at the end of a doubleheader, where probably everybody wants to go home anyway. It's the 11th inning of game two. And you're just putting yourself in a position to maybe make an impact. And it worked. It was a brilliant play by Andrew Kisner. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the terminology that the Cardinals got away with it, but it's not like they did anything sneaky. I mean, it's a little cheeky, but it's exactly what you want to do in that situation. So let's hear from Andrew Kisner about that exact play after the game as the Cardinals move on to defeat the Reds. one nothing in 11 innings at Bush. You know, before the series started, it's like, you know, if maybe you're not taking the at-bat you want or you're not making the pitch you want to make as a pitcher, you know, it's find a way to get the job done. And um, you try to look at each play individual. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about all the different situations and what can happen and how can I score without getting thrown out. So, you know, it happened, just happened to come true. One of the scenarios we were thinking about and, and there's the game. So walk me through that final play from your perspective. Um, well, I'll just start from the from the top. I couldn't get that far of a primary lead because they're holding me close. I don't want to get doubled off, um, so I have to I have to keep my lead short. Um, I know really anything on the ground I got to go, but low line drive I got to see it through. So I'm not getting too aggressive on my secondary. Um, Goldie hit the ball right at the third baseman, kind of right down the line. So I knew either he was going to miss it and I was just going to walk in and score or he was going to catch it. And at that point, I have to kind of set my base path and get on the inside and kind of run right at where Roman, the catcher, was at uh, to mess with the throw as much as I could and happen to work out. As a catcher, do you have a different perspective on that play? I mean, it's just a tough play. Like I said, it happened just the other day. It happened yesterday. Um, the throw was just a little bit higher. Um, it's kind of the same play. I think he, he actually was kind of middle of the plate whereas he probably should have been more in fair territory to create a better lane or on the other side, and they throw on the foul side. Um, but, you know, it's the heat of the moment. Stuff's happening so fast, it's hard to really see what's going on from behind the plate because he hit Goldie hit the ball probably, I don't even know what it was, 110 miles an hour. So it happened so fast. Um, but the other day, yeah, it just, you know, I know I wanted to get on the inside, and I know Arenado's going to make that play throwing at home. He ain't throwing it to first base, and he made just a – a better throw and I was able to get the tag. So it was just two different plays, very different, but very similar at the same time. You wish he hit you anywhere else besides the elbow? Uh, in my butt would have been nice. <laughs> Might have been a bigger target. I don't know how he got my elbow. And so that was Cardinals catcher Andrew Kisner regarding the play and, and some really good insight on what that looked like. And it's something the Cardinals work on. I don't know if he mentioned too much of that in, in that clip there, but that's all courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest from their Twitter account going to wrap it up there though because we've gone a little long but check out on Bally Sports Twitter if you want to hear a little bit more of that there's a little bit more that I did not play on the episode today the fact that he said 
in my butt is something that I, I, I already saw thanks to Cardinals gifts uh, circulating on Twitter. So sorry about that one, kids. Um, kind of funny, though. That's going to do it, though, for this edition of B-Shape Daily. Cardinals win the doubleheader. They're up eight games. Sunday is coming. Albert Pujols should be in the lineup. Can he get to 700 against all odds with a two-home run game on Sunday? Whether he does, whether he doesn't, we'll be back on Sunday night to recap it and then get you set for the road trip as the Cardinals head out west. And they'll be taking on San Diego, Los Angeles, and then uh, heading over to Milwaukee for a couple games before returning for the final series at home of the regular season. So that's going to do it for this edition of the show. Appreciate you guys always for listening. We'll talk to you next time on B-Shape Daily. Peace.